Thank you so much, Elder Kwaon, for reading God's Word and leading the service. Welcome everyone, whether you are here on site or you are watching this from your homes online. Welcome to ARPC. And I ask you to please keep your Bibles open to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we just read. And also if you can, uh, you can also go to the e-bulletin where there's a sermon outline that you can use to follow this, uh, this sermon. Now, does it matter if you listen to this sermon or not? Does it matter who you listen to at all? What effects does our hearing have? The shocking events of January 6, right, when thousands of protesters stormed the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., show us how the words of one man can lead to terrible chaos and tragic deaths. So in total, we've learned that five persons died from this. For days leading up to that eventful day, that riot, then-President Donald Trump called for, I quote, a big protest to take back what they did to us on November 3rd. And when the, the crowds had gathered in response, he praised them for showing up to save our democracy. And he told them, we are going to walk down to the capital. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. For his part in inciting this insurrection, Trump has been impeached for the second time. This past week here in Singapore, we've heard the shocking news of this 16-year-old student who was detained for planning an attack on two mosques in March this year. So we thank God that his uh, actions were, were known and he was uh, detained. Right? And this youth professed to be a Protestant Christian. He professed to be a Bible-believing Christian. But it is clear that he was listening not to God's word, but to other sources of authority. The ISD said this, he was self-radicalized, motivated by a strong antipathy toward Islam and a fascination with violence. He watched the live-streamed video of the terrorist attack on the two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, and read the manifesto of the attacker, Brenton Tarrant. So I think these two examples show us that it does, it does matter who or what we listen to. Proverbs 15 verse 32 tells us, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. But with all these voices out there that competes to offer us wisdom, especially in today's information age, why should we listen to God above all? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us why God is worth listening to and how we should be listening to him. We'll be asking why it is so important to listen in the last days, how to be listening in the right ways, and finally, how we can personally be listening to God, to what he says versus other voices out there. Firstly, let's set the context. Second Timothy was the second letter written by the Apostle Paul to this young, younger pastor, Timothy, whom he had left to lead the church in Ephesus. And Paul at this point was writing from prison. 
Likely, he was awaiting execution. He writes to exhort and to instruct Timothy to keep on teaching sound doctrine and model holy living in these difficult times. In chapter 1, verse 8, Timothy was caught to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In chapter 4, verse 2, he was to preach the word in season and out of season. And this was because people needed to listen to God, to what God was saying. So first, Paul tells Timothy why it's so important to be listening to God in the last days. In verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Both Timothy and us have to understand this because we, like him, live in these last days, which is the entire period between the two comings of the Lord Jesus, from his death, resurrection, ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, until the Lord's return. Jesus told his disciples that in these last days, in the world, you will have tribulation. And Paul also warns us, there will come times of difficulty. Followers of the Lord Jesus will face both moral conflict and doctrinal confusion, then in Timothy's time, as well as now in our time. Moral conflict we can see from verse 2 onwards. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So Paul describes people in the last days here with around 20 attributes or adjectives. Notice the repetition of the word love in the first two descriptions and towards the end as well. And this tells us, I think, that our life is disciplined, is actually, our life is actually defined or described by what we love. Sinners love self, money, and pleasures. There is narcissism, materialism, and hedonism. We don't love good or we don't love God, who is the ultimate source of all good. Rather, our lives as sinners are marked by pride, rebellion, slander, and violence against one another. And so when Paul calls us to avoid such people, I don't think he means that Christians should withdraw from the world as, as hermits, that we should form a religious cloister, right, become a holy harder. Because the Lord Jesus himself was actually caught a friend of sinners for eating with sinners. His disciples were caught to be the light of the world that is not hidden but shines before others. So I think rather that Paul here was calling for holiness within the church, meaning that you and I should not tolerate self-righteous religious sinners within the church. And that begins from ourselves. Doctrinal confusion may be seen from verse 6 onwards. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, 
burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so this man also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. See, perhaps at that time, false teachers had sneaked into households like smooth-talking salesmen. They were deceiving believers who were spiritually unstable and doctrinally weak. And so we still have this today, right? You may have Mormon missionaries knock on your door or approach you on the, on the street to share their restored gospel. Okay? And last year, we learned of this secretive South Korean cult the Shincheonji Church of Jesus, right, that has an unregistered chapter in Singapore and regards its founder as the second coming of Christ. We still have false teachers today. And like Janice and Jambres, which are the traditional names for the Egyptian charlatan magicians who oppose Moses, Paul says that such false teachers who oppose the truth are corrupted in mind and disqualified in regard to the truth. But he's confident that the true faith will always prevail, for this man's folly will be clear to all. Both moral conflict and doctrinal confusion can destabilize a believer who is weak in their faith and or fuzzy in their doctrines. Right? So every two years, Ligonia Ministries in the US would publish a survey of evangelicals or Bible-believing Christians. And this survey is called the States of Theology in the United States. The 2020 survey was completed in March last year, before the COVID hit, and it produced some very alarming results. For example, 30% of professing Bible-believing Christians in the US actually deny the deity of Christ. Close to half believe that People are actually good by nature, and so on. Now, I wonder what results this survey, this same survey, may yield if we were to conduct a state of theology in Singapore or even in ARPC. Okay, so I challenge you, you can go and test your own orthodoxy online at this website, thestatesoftheology.com slash take survey, right, and try and see whether you're orthodox. See, biblical illiteracy and theological ignorance makes us susceptible to dangerous heresies. It makes us weak and open to extremist ideologies. And this was the very context in which Paul wrote, and we live in a similar context. And perhaps this has been made worse by easy access to ideas on the internet. And that's why as we are listening in the last days, it's also crucial to be listening in the right ways, right? to be discerning. And that was what Paul teaches from verse 10 onwards. So from verses 10 to, th to 17, first Paul points Timothy to listen to the story of his own life as Paul lived for the sake of Christ. In verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened 
to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the godly examples of Christians who have faithfully endured suffering and bore witness for the Lord. And this past Wednesday, we lost one of these brothers, our brother Chang Ngin Kyung, who went home to the Lord in Sydney at the age of 47 due to lung cancer. And personally, I, I remember Wing Kyung and his wife Jackie uh, taking time, traveling to visit us in Sydney, when my wife June fell quite sick. And we remember the, the, the good time that we spent and their encouragement to us. And many of us would also remember him as a cheerful and encouraging brother to us. And he remained so till the very end. Last week, I also sent June to visit her former vice principal, who is in her last days as well, due to cancer. We were also very encouraged by her strong Christian witness. You will know of others in our midst who are in their last stretch of life as well. And we must pray for them and for their families. Some of you who know me would know that in my early days, uh, early years as a believer, I had this very strange reading habit. And that was, I only read books written by dead men. Of course, they were certainly alive when they wrote these books. But some of the heroes of, my faith, of the faith at the time to me were people like Charles Spurgeon, George Muller, George Whitfield and John Calvin. And if you know them, they are all men who have been dead for centuries. Perhaps because I think that dead men can sin no more. And their legacies have actually withstood the test of time. I assure you that nowadays I do read slightly more broadly from those who are alive as well. But we, can, we don't just have to learn from those who are sick or dying or dead they are not the only ones who can encourage us. I'm sure that there are others living people in your lives who also reflect Christ and testify to His grace. Listen to the stories of their lives. And as I think of this, I recall the song that's sung by Steve Green, Find Us Faithful. May our own lives as pilgrims on this narrow road also point others to Christ and encourage them to persevere under hardship and persecution as we live godly lives in Christ. Paul went on to say in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. See, Timothy wasn't just caught to learn from the lives of Paul and other faithful saints like his mother Louis and his grandmother Louis and his mother Eunice. Timothy was also to listen to God in the sacred writings in verse 15, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. Now, because these are part of our uh, memory verses for this week, so we're going to spend a bit more time unpacking what this means. Firstly, the sacred writings or holy scriptures, depending on your Bible, your Bible translation, refers to the Old Testament as well as some of the apostles' writings that had already been written by then. And the Old Testament are the law, the prophets, and the writings, the three divisions that made up the Jewish Bible. And why is it important? In Luke 24, the, Lord, the, res the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to two disciples on their way to Emmaus. And we are told, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? So the Old Testament actually testified about the Lord Jesus. And later he will also say to the eleven, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So if we find the Old Testament challenging and we are tempted to skip over the difficult parts, the long chapters of genealogies and the numbers, we must pay attention to Jesus' words here. The entire Old Testament contains the foundational promises about God's saving plan through Him, the Lord Jesus. And so without these 39 books, we will have an incomplete idea of the Gospel. As the Old Testament contains the foundational beliefs uh, or promises about Jesus, so the New Testament is the fulfillment of these promises. But how can we be certain that these 27 books in the New Testament are sacred writings too? Well, in Luke 24 as well, the reason Lord Jesus appointed the 11 to be eyewitnesses of how he suffered, died, and rose from the dead, and to preach right, repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. He promised them the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse to teach them all things, bring to rem remembrance all he said to them, and to guide them into all truth so that they may pass on Jesus' teaching accurately. In his second letter, the Apostle Peter said this, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorance and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So here we see the evidence that the apostles were claiming for their own writings the same level of, of authority as the Old Testament scriptures, because they understood the unique role that the Lord Jesus had given them to be witnesses of his earthly ministry and resurrection. And by the end of the 4th century, the 66 books of our Bible today were almost universally accepted by churches, both in the East as well as in the West, as inspired scriptures, while other later writings were rejected. Then the church leader Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria, he was likely the very first to formally list out these 66 books in AD 367. But in doing so, he was merely confirming what the churches at that time had already by then accepted, 
So the process of canonization was not a political ploy by the Roman emperor in order to achieve national unity, right? unlike what Dan Brown and others may tell us. So the Bible, firstly, the Bible is also able to make us wise for salvation. Paul says this in verse 15, that the sacred writings is able to make us wise for salvation. How so? Well, the Bible shows us our fallen condition and our helpless situation. It points us to our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and teaches us to trust in his saving work alone in order to be right with God. So key Bible passages like Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, which we have actually memorized right, over the past few weeks, they are examples of such passages that teach us. We don't need any other speculation or intervention in order to be saved because God has given us his definitive revelation in the Bible. This is the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. We are saved by God's word alone. But this does not mean, however, that the Bible is our sole or only authority. And later we'll be looking at other sources of authority for the believer. Right? But the Bible should be the final and highest authority in our lives and in our doctrine because it carries God's own authority as his revealed word. In verse 16, we are told that the Bible is breathed out by God. And theologically, we would call this the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Unfortunately, the word inspired today may simply be taken to refer to an, an inspired piece of work, an excellent piece of literary work, or maybe something akin to uh, intuitive. Right? But this original Greek word is a rare one and is used only here in the New Testament. So what Paul was basically doing was he was taking two words, theos, which means God, and neo, which means to breathe or to blow. And so put together, it literally means breathed out by God. Now, one of my favorite series of books growing up when I was very young was the Hardy, Boy, uh, Hardy Boys Mystery Series. I don't know whether it's still around today. Uh, I must have borrowed and read over 50 of them from the library. Right? And I know from young that the author's name, which appears on every cover, was Franklin W. Dixon. But it was only very recently that I realized that Franklin W. Dixon was not a real person. It was actually a collective pseudonym or a fake pen name for various ghost writers who wrote over 78 years from 1927 to 2005. Each of them had their own writing styles and cultural accommodations in keeping with the times. So in a sense, is the Bible like that? Well, in a sense, the Bible is somewhat like that, and yet also quite different. I think Peter explains it best in his, in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. He says, No prophecy or scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, God is not a collective pseudonym for all the uh, writers, human writers of the Bible. 
over and above this 40 over human authors who wrote this 66 books of the Christian Bible in various literary genres and in three different languages over the span of more than 1,600 years. There is, there is one divine author who stitches all this together. Without squashing the human author's distinctive characteristics, he forms one overarching theme, one overarching big story, or what we call meta-narrative. The whole Bible has one theme, and that is the glory of God in the redemption of humanity. And the whole Bible has one focus, which is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who saves sinners by grace through faith. And next, in verse 16, we also read that since the Bible is breathed out or inspired by God, the Bible is therefore profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. See, the Bible is useful to all believers in these four ways. And that was why God spoke in human languages. That's why God made his revelation loud and clear to anyone who would seek its meaning. This is the doctrine of the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he also assures believers, But we have the mind of Christ. See, brothers and sisters, regenerated, born-again believers can understand God's Word by the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, how do we use the Bible? This diagram may help explain the four ways that we can apply the Bible. Firstly, teaching. Teaching is instruction about God, telling us about God's existence, His being and His attributes, how He relates to sinners like us, why his son Jesus had to come, and so on. And so as, as we read the Bible, every time we read the Bible, we may ask ourselves, what have I learned about God, about Jesus, humanity, and our world? Reproof, the second word, is basically conviction about our wrong attitudes, beliefs, or behavior. It's pointing out our mistakes. And so whenever we read God's word, we can ask, what do I need to change? in my beliefs or behavior. The third one, correction, is redirecting us back to the truth or the path of righteousness. It's changing our wrong views and behavior to conform to God again. And so we must ask, what should I believe or do now in light of God's work? And finally, training is the discipline and development of the reformed believer for the long run. We may ask, how can I apply or practice this daily? How can I keep doing this for the rest of my life? We should and we can use this Bible, the Bible in these four ways for ourselves first, to teach, reprove, correct, and train ourselves, and then to help others as well, to continue on God's road of righteousness. In verse 17, we also learn the fourth thing, that the Bible is sufficient for gospel ministry. Now, the term there, uh, man of God, is an Old Testament title for God's servants, for men like Moses, David, and the prophets. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul also calls Timothy a man of God 
in verse, chapter 6, verse 11. So likely here, Paul was referring to the sufficiency of Scripture for gospel ministry. Whether in pastoral ministry or Christian leadership, we already have everything we need in God's Word, the Bible. This makes us complete and fully equipped. Anything else is simply complementary and not supplementary. Right? So it doesn't mean that God's Word is inadequate in any way. And now to prove that I do read authors who are alive, let me quote to you uh, Bible teacher John MacArthur who said this. So what's the role of the preacher? The preacher or the Bible teacher is not a chef. He is a waiter. God doesn't want you to make the meal. He just wants you to deliver it to the table without messing it up. That's all. This means that the pastor or the Bible teacher mustn't ever get bored of preaching and teaching God's word plainly in season and out of season. And the believer shouldn't ever get bored of listening to God in his word, the Bible, whether in our preaching or in our personal devotion. We shouldn't move on too quickly to merely address current issues in the pulpit, to address social trends at the expense of God's word. And yet, God's word, when rightly understood and taught, it is sufficient and relevant to address our world and these issues of our times. Peter assures us in 1 Peter chapter 1, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The Bible is God's evergreen revelation, ever relevant for everyone, everywhere. So now we've seen how we should be listening in the right ways by listening to God, but how do we actually listen to what God says in His Word? We've mentioned earlier that sola scriptura, the doctrine, doesn't mean that Christians are to hold to the Bible alone as our authority in faith and practice. The Reformers understood that tradition and reason do have a part to play as well in our life and doctrine. And yet, Scripture, as, as God's breathed outward, should have the highest and final authority over tradition and reason. Later, John Wesley would also add Christian experience to the plate. And so we'll be looking at the so-called Wesleyan quadrilateral. Right? We are comparing the Bible to tradition, reason, as well as experience. So first, the Bible and tradition. Tradition here refers to the historical beliefs and practices of the church, which may or may not flow out from the right understanding of the Bible. So this may include the historical creeds, catechisms, confessions. And in the, in the Presbyterian tradition, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith and the longer and shorter catechisms. Most other traditions and denominations also have their own distinctive creeds, from the Anglican Church's 39 Articles of Religion to the 1689 or 2nd London Baptist Confession of Faith, and so on. We also have, across the denomination, we also have the Apostles' Creed and the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which in short is too long, right? So we call it the Nicene Creed. And these are historically accepted by most Orthodox Christians. Each of these creeds actually flowed out of the careful study of God's Word 
by faithful pastors and elders in order to correct certain heresies that arose in the early church. And so whenever we encounter a new heresy, uh, which very often is just a variant of some old heresy, we shouldn't come to the fray in ignorance. We shouldn't be trying to reinvent the wheel. The old vaccines still work against these new variants, right, these new heresies. We also shouldn't come in arrogance, thinking that we know better than these ancient Christians. But what if we wrongly place the authority of tradition over and against Scripture? What will happen? Well, last November, Pope Francis he stirred up a storm when his old comments stating support for the legal protection of those in same-sex civil unions was twisted out of context. And then earlier this month, he issued a letter that again shook the Roman Catholic Church as he formally allowed women to give readings from the Bible during Mass, act as altar service and distribute communion. Why is it that the Pope's word has such an effect on the church, the Roman Catholic Church? Well, because whenever the Pope is speaking ex cathedra, in his position as uh, the vicar of Christ on earth, his word carries authority. And sometimes it may even supplant the authority of God's word. See, if the words of any man or even ecclesiastical body, council, take precedence over scripture, we will end up with such moving morality. We have shifting standards. Every point of our church tradition ought to be in accordance with God's revelation in Scripture. Otherwise, it deserves to be discarded. Now, what about human reason? If the Bible is God's revelation, surely it should be able to stand up to rational scrutiny, right? And it does. Right? We see in Acts 17 that Paul was able to reason with the Jews from Scripture, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And the Bible, the whole Bible promotes rather than downplays the place of reason, right? which is why many prominent scientists in history, they are believers. Why then does Paul warn against human tradition and philosophy in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8? He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Why does Paul want against overvaluing reason? Well, because human reason has been tainted by the fall. What Paul was addressing was when we use reason apart from Scripture or set the authority of reason above scripture in order to determine what we believe or how we live. And one outcome of this is the theological liberalism that denies the divinity of the Lord Jesus, denies his virgin birth, earthly miracles, bodily resurrection from the dead, and other kinds of supernaturalism that does not agree with rationalism. It is really the same lie that Satan said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, right? Did God really say? And more recently, this is expressed in the embracing of alternative sexualities and lifestyles, apart from the biblical creation model, both within and outside the church. 
human reason or the voice of the world also tells us that infidelity is actually human nature, right? That it is easier to get a divorce than to stick it out and remain faithful in marriage when things don't seem to be working out. But brothers and sisters and friends, our human reason is always fallen and flawed, and it must be guided by God's infallible word. Next, we go on to consider the Bible and experience. The scriptures may be affirmed by our Christian experience as we see God's promises working out in our lives, right? or we experience God's love in the body of believers. And such experiences can also strengthen our faith in the Lord and fortify our, desi our desire and our will to follow Him. But our experiences and feelings, which are always subjective, should never determine what we believe or practice. But it, this must always be judged by Scripture. Many today, including Christians, are listening to modern-day prophets. Okay? I'm not talking about the charismatic prophets who, who proclaim that, uh, God's word, right? claiming that they have new uh, revelations from God, but I'm referring to the innovation of so-called spiritual directors. Right? And according to the web, I quote, they are dedicated to guiding people in the spiritual journey, helping them explore matters of the soul, faith, and God. But these spiritual directors have no doctrinal stance, and they make no truth claims. They can be any religion, any faith. It is really a case of the blind leading the blind. If we truly seek religious experiences, we shall never be satisfied. But if we take joy in the Lord and we delight in His Word, we'll always find endless contentment. The words of Agu in Proverbs 30 shall be our experience as well. He says, Every word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a lie. Finally, let us look at the last point, the Bible and us. Now, Chinese New Year is near, right? And Chinese New Year is always a season of temptation for many of us, with a wide variety of goodies made available. And I discovered to my horror that one slice of bakwa is actually equivalent to 370 kilocalories. Did you know that? One love letter, one very simple love letter is 56 kilocalories and so on. And since the beginning of last year, I've started tracking my diet. Everything that goes into my mouth goes into this app on my phone as well. And so my family has resolved this year not to buy any Chinese New Year goodies so that we might not be led into temptation. But I wonder, uh, are we also carefully tracking our intake of what we read or what we listen to? because we are daily exposed to lots of spiritual junk food on social media today. Whether it's on the internet or other forms of media, surely, if you measure it, our spiritual calories are quite high, right? Even if we were to carefully curate our sources of information, sometimes we may be too strapped for time or too impatient to really read in depth. And so our social media usage has actually bred a generation of careless listeners and readers. 
Christians can succumb to something known as soundbite theology, right? where we skim read the Bible and Christian books and articles without stopping to reflect and meditate. If the Bible is truly God's word, surely we must slow down and take heed what God is saying to us. Some of us love these short quotes by Christian leaders on social media, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram. And so often we end up doing what is called Bible quoting rather than Bible reading. We end up doing Bible cherry picking. And what's the problem with that, you may ask, as long as we are reading parts of the Bible, right? Well, here's an illustration I heard. A man decides to seek guidance from the Bible, and so he decides to close his Bible right, and open it on a random page and just place his finger there. Right? And so the first passage he goes to is Matthew 27, verse 5. And he, that is Judas, went and hanged himself. Doesn't sound right. Let me try again. Next was Luke chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Hmm, he hesitates. One more time. John 13, 27. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. I hope this is a fictitious story, but it does illustrate for us, I think, the danger of Bible cherry-picking. We should always read God's Word in context, and the best way to do this is by reading systematically. And to help us to do that regularly, since we are creatures of habit, it is helpful to have a Bible reading plan or to use a devotional guide. There are some free ones available online from sites like Olive Tree Software, which I use, or Bible Gateway. But if you're an aura or listening person rather than a visual person, then perhaps use a website like Bible Gateway or Bible.com that plays the audio Bible. Or you could also subscribe to a devotional podcast. And these are some of those that I personally used or am using now. And if you want to go a bit deeper into God's Word, you could use a Bible study guide to read the Bible personally or as a couple. You could also ask a fellow brother or sister in Christ to encourage you. Choose someone of the same sex to read this Bible book together with you. And there's also the weekly discipleship groups which you can join if you're not part of yet, as well as the weekend sermons in church. For families, I think the men can take a lead, and we just had a men's fellowship this weekend, and we should learn that the man takes the lead at home to do family devotions. Or perhaps if the dads aren't believers yet, the moms can do that. My family used this range of resources, from the big picture story Bible when the kids are in preschool, to the Jesus storybook Bible to low, in lower primary. And then when the kids, uh, the two older kids in upper primary, they are now reading the Bible itself. Now, a temptation with kids is to skip the boring bits or the difficult parts. But since Paul tells us right, that all scripture is breathed out by God, I think we should model this as well to our children by reading through all these parts of God's word anyway. And what I do with my daughter right now is that I will bring her on a field trip. Right? If we are reading the Old Testament, we take a field trip and we go to the New Testament to see how this Old Testament passage is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And vice versa as well, I do the reverse as well to show my children how both testaments has one central figure 
and that is the Lord Jesus. Of course, for those with older children, uh, youths, uh, teens, we may have to give them a bit more autonomy, right? A, a bit more freedom about what they want to do. And yet we can recommend it. We can do recommendations. We can also encourage them to do so. And most importantly, we must ourselves model this, right? Because they will do what they see us doing. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man, or we can add woman, keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So if we want to safeguard our children, right, we need to be teaching them God's word and encouraging them to read God's word for themselves. In the end, does it matter who we listen to? Remember the dangers that we mentioned at the beginning, right? That comes from listening to the wrong stuff. Since the Bible is breathed out by God and it shows us how to be saved in Christ and it teaches us and reproves us and corrects us and trains us in righteousness, then it certainly matters that we should be regularly listening to God in His Word. Now let's read uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 together because this is our memory verse for this week and we will try to commit this to memory. So let's read this together, the count three. We read the, the reference, which is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, and then we read the verse together. Okay, let's do this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We thank God for giving us His Word. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, thank You for speaking to us in Your Word so that we might know how to be saved through faith in Christ Jesus. Your Word is inspired and authoritative. It is inerrant and infallible. It is clear and sufficient. It is profitable to teach us, reproof, correct and train us in righteousness. So help us treasure up your word in our hearts. Incline our ears to hear you daily in the Bible. And please grow in us a hunger to hear you daily and to make your word known to others as well, so that we might all know Christ and confess him as Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.